You're listening to Reach MDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Dr. Deborah Spar. Dr. Spar is a Spangler Family Professor at Harvard Business School and the Senior Associate Dean, Director of Research. Today we discuss her recent book, Baby Business, How Money, Science, and Politics Drives the Commerce of Conception. Dr. Spar, in your book, how do you build the premise that procreation really is a business? Well, I build it the way I, I try and build any argument, which is just looking at, at the basic facts of the matter. And what I do in the book and what I've been doing over the past few years is, is really just looking at the different aspects of fertility practice. And I think the more you look at it, the, the harder it is to convince yourself that there's not commerce going on. Um, because if you think about what commerce is at a very, very basic level, there's prices and there's money being exchanged and there are contracts being signed and, and that kind of activity, which I think is perfectly legitimate, in many cases wonderful activity, is going on all over uh, the fertility industry. Why does the public like to think that this particular business really isn't under the normal rules of economics and commerce? Well, I think it's very, very understandable that people, for the most part, don't go into the baby business because it's a business they wanted to get into. People generally go into the market when old-fashioned forms of procreation aren't working for them. So they're distressed, they're nervous, they're emotional, and they're trying to make a baby. And that's something which, of course, is deeply intimate and personal. And I think people have this inherent knee-jerk reaction to wanting to believe that what they're doing remains personal and intimate and emotional, even if, in fact, it's costing them $150,000. How is this $150,000 spent? How is it divided? Well, there's all different kinds of paths that one can take in this industry, really depending on, on their particular circumstances. But, for example, sort of a, an easy case to start out, you could imagine a happily married couple that for reasons that no doctor can quite figure out, just aren't able to produce a child through natural means. So they may go through a series of fertility treatments, and in most of the U.S. states, they're going to be paying out of pocket for these fertility consultations because they're not covered by insurance. So they're paying you know, just normal doctor's fees, testing fees, and then as their problems become harder and harder to decipher, they will probably go for uh, in vitro fertilization. And a single round of IVF costs about twelve dollars to $13,000, depending where they're located. But they may have to go through three or four of those cycles. And if you add it up, they're now spending $50,000, $60,000. They may decide at that point that the woman's eggs could be the source of the problem that maybe she's not producing a lot of eggs, maybe her eggs don't seem to be fertilizing easily, maybe she's just too old. And so they may go out and purchase eggs from what is still called a donor. And again, depending on which eggs they buy and where they live, those eggs are going to cost them at least $5,000. And those eggs have to be used, again, in an in vitro fertilization process. So you take the eggs plus another round of IVF, and that new round is going to cost you, again, $20,000. So you can see how this adds up pretty quickly. And that's before we get into some of the even more expensive options, including things like surrogacy, which would involve, again, going through IVF, perhaps with donated eggs, but now also paying for another woman to actually carry the child to term. I see. You know, most businesses, the partners are well-informed, there's competition that exists, and there's transparency. Do you think these issues are being met in this particular business? 
know, that was one of the big motivations that led me to write this book, because I think there has been, until really very recently, much less transparency in this part of medicine than there is in others. And I think in if you just think about cancer treatment, I think people are aware of the fact that there's commerce going on there, but they understand that, they acknowledge that, and there's a lot of channels available to get information about various treatments. In the baby business, I think because until recently people were somewhat embarrassed or ashamed to be going through it, there was much less information out there. And so you're dealing with a group of people who almost by definition are pretty vulnerable at the time they're going through treatment. And you add to that a lack of information and, and to be honest, just treatments that really are advancing at a very rapid pace. And you get a situation where people, in my opinion, just don't have as much information as they ideally should have. Is anybody interceding when you deal with a desperate customer slash patient? Basically, no. Some of the better clinics and the better doctors do have social workers or nurse practitioners who meet with the patients as they come in. But you know, even that is inherently a somewhat awkward relationship because that person works for the practice. So people are really getting their information from a single source. And in times like this or situations like this, the more information you have, the better you are. And, and I think the part of my book, which can be interpreted as, as harsh, is, is just trying to get people to fess up, if you will, and say, yes, we're going through a treatment that's will hopefully deliver this wonderful, priceless, invaluable baby, but we are also undergoing a commercial transaction. And I think people need to realize that, tough as it might seem, because we behave differently when we're making commercial transactions than when we're making personal transactions. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and today my guest is Dr. Deborah Spar. Dr. Spar has written the recent book, Baby Business. And we're discussing various aspects of this new $3 billion business. Dr. Spar, the federal government does not seem to want to become involved in this particular business, either the left or the right. Can you explain this? I think the lack of political interest in this business is actually really easy to understand. Because first of all, you have the people who would be regulated, and that is the fertility companies, the drug companies, the intermediaries. And like most folks in their position, they do not like the idea of regulation. Americans have a real allergic reaction to any kind of regulation. And for sure, the fertility industry is, is no different. What is different here is that the, the customers, if you will, also, until very recently, have had no interest in regulation because the people going through fertility treatments have not really managed to organize themselves in any way. You don't have networks the way you would have of people with HIV AIDS or people with cancer, people with, in fact, most other medical conditions, because infertility has been secretive until very, very recently. You've had almost no organization by the affected people. The ones who, of course, are most affected, the children who are born through these procedures, have not organized themselves at all, although I suspect over time that will happen. So you really have no constituency for regulation. There's no one out there picketing in the streets to have fertility industry regulations be put in place. And what makes it, of course, even more complicated is that if you're going to be serious about regulating this industry and regulating these procedures, at some point you, you run into the embryo and you have to figure out certain things about the embryo. Who owns an embryo? If an embryo is destroyed, is that destruction of property or destruction of life? And these, of course, are not only very complicated moral questions, but they're questions that politically 
almost no politician in this country wants to grapple with. You know, that's interesting. You know, the constituency is really almost in a fa- is faced with a chaos in that the rules vary from state to state. Insurance companies may or may not pay, and contracts are drawn up that can't be enforced. Don't they feel this increasing pressure? I think not, to be honest. And and it is quite odd. I mean, as as you just mentioned, this is one of the very few areas of, of business where contracts can't be enforced. I mean, in most other parts of the economy, we say right off the bat that you have to have enforceable contracts. That's sort of a, a mantra among economists. Yet here we we have unenforceable contracts, and yet the the doctors have gotten used to operating in this realm, and I think with you know with good justification are worried about their lives becoming infinitely more complicated once they have to start dealing with contracts, and the patients slash customers, in most cases are you know so determined to do whatever it will take to get their baby that they really see no need to muck things up and complicate their lives by having contracts. So the only time when you really see the need for contracts hitting you in the face is after things have gone bad, by which point, of course, it's too late. You mentioned property rights, which is really a business term. I can imagine that the people involved in this business don't want to even think about an embryo, an egg, a sperm as being a piece of property. No. And again, you know, we're all human beings. And I think everyone, myself included, responds that way, that you don't for sure want to think of a child as property. And I think any parent who has a job fully understands that this is not property, especially when they become teenagers. But what happens in this case is that in a small number of instances, but a real number of instances, we do run into what become property rights problems. So who owns or who has control over the embryo once it has been created? And there have been a number of recent, really tragic cases where a couple creates an embryo, divorces, and subsequently one of the parents wants access to that embryo and the other does not. How do you decide those cases? Now, I'm not sure we need property rights necessarily, but we need some kind of legal system, whether it be based on family law or contract law, something that will enable us to solve these things before they become these horribly drawn-out court cases. What is the business model that you would like to see? I think what we need to have, and it's admittedly a tough thing, but is to have some kind of a political debate, which realistically would probably occur at the state level rather than the federal level, to kind of figure out where in this brave new world we want to draw lines. And I actually don't think that's as hard as it might sound. I think most people, if they were you know, forced to discuss this or had the opportunity to discuss it, would say that children are good things and that people who are unable to have children through natural means should receive some help, should receive medical treatment. And then we'd have to think about you know, what are the conditions under which infertility is a medical condition. In most cases, it's simple. If you're dealing with a 23-year-old woman who has blocked fallopian tubes, that's a medical condition. I actually think most people, if the debate were framed this way, would say, yes, let's wrap that into insurance. Let's make sure that that young woman can get the medical help that she needs. On the other hand, if you're dealing with a 63-year-old woman who is in poor health, perhaps is in a poor financial condition, and she decides at the age of 63 she wants to have triplets, seems to me pretty obvious that that's something that society should not be supporting. Many people are coming to the United States for fertility evaluations and treatment. What are other countries doing 
that is different than ours causing this tourism for infertility? Well, you have at the moment sort of a, a global patchwork of regulation, and they, they really run the, the gamut. So you have some countries like Italy, which has essentially banned all forms of fertility treatment. So if you have an Italian couple that is unable to have a child, they are forced to go outside Italy. Another sort of extreme example, if you will, is Denmark, which has one of the most liberal policies regarding fertility treatments. And the Danes have basically defined infertility as a medical condition. And when couples are infertile, the state will pay for up to three rounds of treatment. I see. I want to thank Dr. Sparrow, who's been our guest, and we've been discussing her new book, The Baby Business. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.